I once knew an older gentleman who grieved serious sin in his past. He knew that he deserved the wrath of God. He knew that he had no righteousness of his own. But he had come to receive the salvation of God. The righteousness of God received as a gift by faith. And he was now passionate about the holiness of God. And about the grace of God. And he loved to talk to others about God and the gospel. And he once shared with me one of his methods of evangelism. So he would sometimes ask people, if your house was on fire, would you want me to tell you? And you would think most people would say, yes, of course. If if that was a real scenario, I would want to do anything I could to save my loved ones, or my possessions. And so if they would say yes, then he would say, your house is on fire. And he would say, let me explain what I mean. I'm not talking about your physical house. I'm talking about your soul, your life. You face the righteous judgment of God, the wrath of God. And you are headed for destruction if you are not saved. And he would go on to share the good news of the gospel. Now, not everyone will use that same method. But there's a sense in which we could say this section of Romans that we now begin is like Paul saying, your house is on fire. The letter of Romans is about the gospel of God. The good news of the gospel. The best news the world has ever heard. It's the greatest story ever told about the greatest person who ever lived with the greatest offer ever given. But in order for us to believe that and see that and rejoice in that and embrace that good news, we must first understand the bad news. That our house is on fire. All mankind are born under the wrath of God and every person desperately needs to be rescued. This is not a time for apathy or for comfort or for entertainment or for procrastination. This is an urgent call to do all that you can to be saved. Now our first three sermons in the book of Romans, we were just taking baby steps. We're just getting started. We saw the introduction We saw Paul's thanksgiving and his longing. And last week, Colin did an excellent job in proclaiming the theme verse, verses 16 and 17. We read those again today to help us see that context of the righteousness of God, the salvation of God that is given to us. But now today, we we get into Paul's teaching, his explanation of the gospel. And I have been helped by a, a broad general outline of the letter. It's three G words. I didn't make it up myself. I don't remember where I first saw it. But if you can remember guilt, grace, and gratitude, you can remember the main message of the letter of Romans. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. So guilt is the, almost the first three chapters. And then Paul will turn to his wonderful explanation of the grace of God in Christ from the end of chapter 3 all through basically to the end of chapter 11. And then the last four chapters, 12 through 16, the gratitude that we show to God in response to his marvelous grace. So guilt, grace, and gratitude. Now, it will take us 
several weeks to make our way through this opening section on guilt to see the human condition apart from the grace of God in Christ to show us our need. But this morning, we begin our study on guilt today with this main point. Beloved, we need, every one of us, we need the free gift of God's righteousness to be saved from the wrath of God, which is right now and will be poured out on everyone who is unrighteous. Every one of us, we need the free gift of righteousness to be saved from the wrath of God, which is right now and will be poured out on everyone who is unrighteous. This morning, I want to ask four questions. What is the wrath of God? Who deserves the wrath of God? Why do we deserve the wrath of God? And then how can we be saved from the wrath of God? So we begin with the first question. What is the wrath of God? Verse 18, Paul says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The wrath of God refers to the holy God's personal anger against sin. Our God is the creator and the judge of all the earth. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne This means that God always does what is right and what is just and what is good. Always without exception. Sin is evil and wicked. So God who is just and righteous always punishes wicked and sin and evil. Proverbs 11.21 says, Be assured an evil person will not go unpunished. So God's punishment is called wrath. God's wrath is not like ours. His wrath is not selfish. It's not arbitrary. It's not out of control. It's never unfitting to the situation. It is God's perfectly appropriate and just and holy response to human wickedness. It is both his righteous judgment against sin a judgment, but it is also the holy revulsion of his being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. So it's a judgment, and it is the, the response of his holiness to that which is wicked. God cannot respond to sin in any other way than wrath because he is holy and perfect, and sin cannot abide in his presence. So you might say, well, what hope do we have? How can we be saved? And if you are starting to ask those questions, I say, good. You are understanding that your house is on fire. But the amazing good news is that God has provided a way. He has provided a way for your sin to be punished and at the same time for you to be saved. This is why the gospel of Jesus Christ is such good news. Not just good news, it's the best news the world has ever heard. What is the wrath of God? The wrath of God is God's righteous punishment against sin. This wrath is also a present reality and a future certainty. A present reality and a future certainty. God's wrath is a present reality. Verse 18 says, The wrath of God 
is revealed. So, so right now is revealed. It's not only something for the future. It is revealed or it is being revealed. So this is happening right now. Today, in our world, the wrath of God can be seen. Now we will, Lord willing, look at this in more detail next week. Today we just saw the start of it. And this is why I included verses 24 and 25 in our scripture reading today. Verse 24 says, Therefore God gave them up. So one expression or consequence of the wrath of God is that he removes his restraining hand. He gives people up to the sinful desires of their wicked hearts. And so people fall deeper and deeper into sin and perversion and lies. This starts with idolatry and it expresses itself in sexual immorality. It progresses so that people exchange God's good gift of sexual intimacy with the opposite sex and the bonds of covenant marriage between one man and one woman. They exchange that good gift for the dishonorable dishonorable passion of sexual intimacy with the same sex outside of marriage. And beloved, just because the law may allow it does not mean that when two people of the same sex come together and are married in our world today that they are truly married. That is not a marriage in the eyes of God. God is the author of marriage, the creator of marriage, and he declared that marriage is to be between one man and one woman. And this was and is an issue of God's authority way before it was a political issue. It's an issue of the authority of Almighty God. Well, next week, Lord willing, we will talk more about this exchange and how it is an expression of the present reality of God's wrath. So parents, I would encourage you to use wisdom in deciding if this week you want to make this a teaching time in your own home with your children about this sin that is so prevalent and promoted in the world that we live in. It is now everywhere. You will hear it promoted in every corner outside the church and even inside many of our churches today. Next week, the sermon will address what is here in the text. What If you read the text, you can see it plainly. We will look at what God's word has to say about this. So I encourage you to use wisdom. If you know me, you know I will do my best to make it a PG sermon. But I won't avoid what is clear in the text. And I will not twist the words to give it a new meaning. The wrath of God is being revealed right now. It is a present reality. And it will be revealed in the future. It is a coming certainty. There will be a great and terrible final day of judgment. Paul mentions this just a few paragraphs later. If you have your Bible with you and it's open to Romans, you can look down to chapter 2. This is the disadvantage of not bringing your Bibles. So I would urge you to bring your Bibles with you uh, or have access to them. That would be wonderful if you would do that. But if you look at chapter 2 and you see in verses 4 and 5, Paul is 
writing this when he says to those who think that they will escape God's judgment. He says that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There is a coming future certainty to God's wrath. So what hope do we have to escape? The wrath of God is his just punishment against sin. It is a present reality and a future certainty. And it should be the terror of your lives. It should be the terror of your life. Now, I'll explain what I mean by that in just a moment. But first, let me just give you a small sample of what God says about his dreadful wrath some examples of what happens to people when it falls on them. And I pray that we will feel this aspect of God's wrath. It should be the terror of our lives. The Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. A fearful thing for the unrighteous to fall into the hands of the holy God and face his wrath. Psalm 21 tells us, your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. Genesis 38:7. It's a simple statement. It's easy to just read right past it and not think about the implications of it. But it says, but er." Judah's firstborn was wicked in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. Uzzah in 2 Samuel chapter 6. David and God's people, they're celebrating. The ark of God is returning to Jerusalem. It is the symbol of God's presence. But God has given very specific instructions for how to move the ark which is the representation of the presence of the holy God. He's given essentially a safety manual, handle with care, and they're moving the ark, but they are not carrying it according to God's instructions. And it starts to fall to the ground, and Uzzah stretches out his hand to keep it from hitting the ground, to catch it, and he touches it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down, because of his error, and he died there beside the ark. And it says, and David was afraid of the Lord that day. Acts chapter 12, King Herod is giving a speech, and he is being praised by all the people. The voice of a God and not of a man, and immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down. Why? Because he did not give God the glory. And the scriptures say he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. What does Jesus say? In Luke 23, Jesus speaking of this great and awful coming day of wrath, he says the people will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. And it's repeated in Revelation chapter 6, the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave or free, hid themselves in the caves, and among the rocks of the mountains, 
calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of wrath has come and who can stand? How awful it must be when people would prefer to be buried alive than to face the wrath of God. Revelation 14 tells us that the enemies of God will drink the wine of God's wrath. That it will be poured full strength into the cup of his anger. That they will be tormented with fire and sulfur. And the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. Do you see why the Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God? Friend, the wrath of God should be the terror of your life. Your house is on fire. Now let me clarify those words should be. The wrath of God should be the terror of your life. There are two ways that you can take that. First, if you are not trusting in Jesus today, the wrath of God should be the terror of your life. You may not think it is because you do not realize that your house is on fire. You do not believe that you will reap what you sow. You do not believe that the God who made you will hold you accountable to his law. It's out of sight, out of mind. And so you have no idea how awful, how terrible, how dreadful this coming day of wrath will be for you. And I am here to plead with you today. Pray that God will open your eyes, that you will see your sin, that you will see the glory of his son and the salvation of God and turn to him for salvation today. May he have mercy on your soul. But second, and I believe and I pray that this is true for most of you here today. When I say that this should be the terror of your life, beloved, I am emphasizing that this dreadful wrath is what we deserve, but it's gone. We fear it no more. We should, it's what we deserve, but we have been saved from it. Why? Because it has been poured out on Jesus. He is our refuge, our Savior. He's saved us from the wrath to come so that although it should be the terror of our lives, it is no more. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the, the power, the grace of Christ in you. And we cry out, thank you, Jesus. Amen? Now, a second question. So that's what is the wrath of God. Second question, who deserves the wrath of God? You. You, beloved. If you ever think about the wrath of God, think of that first. Not people who sin differently than you, but think of yourself. You and everyone you know, everyone without exception. Paul is making this case over the next few chapters. 
And it'll take us a few weeks to get through it. But that's the case he's making. So he's starting in this chapter 1, the end of chapter 1, 18 through the end of the chapter. And he's, he's beginning with the immoral pagan world, the Gentiles. But he won't stop there. He moves on to the moral religious people, the Jews. And then the summary, all people. All are under sin. So Gentiles and Jews, all, everyone. He'll close this section in chapter 3, verse 19 by saying... Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. Who deserves the wrath of God, the judgment of God? You and everyone else. All people everywhere without exception, the whole world. Our next question, why? Why do we all face the wrath of God? There are two main reasons in this passage. First, we all face the wrath of God because we willingly suppress the truth of God revealed in his creation. We willingly suppress the truth of God revealed in his creation. Paul says it's by our own unrighteousness that we suppress the truth. What truth? The truth manifested in creation. The truth made known in this very world in which we live. Paul says this is plain as day. Look at verse 18 again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without Excuse. When we look at creation, we can clearly see there must be a God who has always existed. We can see his divine nature. There is a God outside of us, above us, unlike us. And we can also see that this divine creator, he must have limitless power to be able to make all that he has made. So think about some of the incredible things that God has made. The stars, the sun, the ocean, the mountains, lions, bears, dogs, cats even. And I don't have anything about cats, I just say that. But all the amazing things he's made. The taste of warm chocolate chip cookies fresh out of the oven with vanilla ice cream, and hot fudge, or pizza, or a grilled hamburger, or fresh fruit, or veggies from the garden, whatever your favorite foods may be. Think of all these amazing, wonderful things that God has made. There has to be someone even more amazing to make all of these amazing things. And that someone is God, and everyone knows it. Everyone knows it. If they reject it, it's because they suppress it. They suppress it. God shows himself in the things that he has made. So quick side note, looking at the things God has made is designed to lead you to worship God and give thanks to him. So let's take time to do that. Parents, 
Teach your children this. Model it for them. Sometime today, in this beautiful fall weather, just pause for a moment and look around you. You're seeing the handiwork of God. And give him glory and give him thanks. God shows himself and the things he made, it is undeniable. And yet people do deny it. But you cannot honestly deny God the creator. You have to suppress the truth. You have to work hard to lock it up, to keep it from coming out. It's like trying to put that sleeping bag back in its case. You have to stuff it in and push it down and suppress it. It takes work. It takes effort. Whitaker Chambers talks about this. He has a book uh, called Witness. He was a former atheist, a former communist. And he recalls his former life as an atheist. And he says, I was sitting in our apartment on St. Paul Street in Baltimore. My daughter, he had just had a newborn daughter. She's sitting in her high chair. And he says, I was watching her eat. She was the most miraculous thing that had ever happened in my life. He says, I like to watch her eat even when she smeared porridge on her face or dropped it on the floor. And my eyes came to rest on the delicate convolutions of her ear, those intricate, perfect ears. The thought passed through my mind. No, those ears were not created by any chance coming together of atoms in nature. They could only have been created by immense design. Where did that thought come from? It came from God Almighty. And he brings those thoughts to everyone. But what did he go on to say? He says, the thought was involuntary and unwanted. I crowded it out of my mind. I had to crowd it out of my mind. If I had completed it, I should have to say, design presupposes God. And he's sharing his testimony. He said, I didn't know at the time that was the first hand of God on my life. Beloved, we are surrounded by clearly revealed evidences of God's power and his presence. We ourselves are such evidences. If we do not know God, if a man, a woman does not know God in his created world, it can only be because they do not want to know God. And that kind of ignorance, that kind of rejection deserves God's wrath. So we all face the wrath of God because we willingly suppress the truth of God revealed in his creation. Second, we all face the wrath of God because we do not glorify God as God or give thanks to him, but instead we commit idolatry. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God Or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise. They became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God. For images resembling mortal man. And birds and animals. And creeping things. So when we fail to worship God. As we were designed. We don't just worship nothing. We fill that void. With a false worship. We exchange the glory of the immortal God for images of his created things. And the Bible calls that idolatry. We were made for God, for his glory to fill our lives. But we reject him and we pursue other glories in his place. Now, I, don't, I wonder if some of your children have ever uh, taken a mold and maybe you have made jello with it, different shapes, 
heart shapes or whatever it may be. Or maybe you've made different cookies with these molds. Or maybe you've been at the beach and you have a mold of a castle. And you fill it with sand. And then you dump it out and you can see you're building a sand castle. God made us like one of those molds. But what fills our lives is God. We are made to be filled with God. And only God can perfectly fill our lives, our mold. But what do we do? We reject him and we try to put other things in his place. Things that don't fit, that weren't made to fill us. We try to put other things in God's place. This is why the man said, the man at the brothel is looking for God. It's why Augustine said, you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. We reject God. We fail to worship him. We try to put other things in his place. We worship his creation rather than him, the creator. And beloved, this is true of everyone you meet. It was true of you before you knew God. And even now, it's a struggle in our lives. We still have to fight against that idolatry. We were made to worship God, to glorify God. Everyone was. Everyone is born with this God-sized hole in their lives, and only God can fill that hole perfectly. And unless they turn to God, their lives will be a series of failed experiments. Nothing will satisfy. There may be temporary distractions, temporary pleasures, but they will not last. Paul says, all people know God, but they do not worship him or say, thank you for making this amazing world. Instead, sin makes their hearts and their minds sick. We all face the wrath of God because we do not glorify God, ask God, or give thanks to him, but instead we commit idolatry. Now that is bad news, but it's part of the good news of the gospel because it reveals to us the righteousness of God. It shows us our need. Every person, we need to be saved from the wrath of God. Our house is on fire. So our last question is this. How can we be saved from the wrath of God that we deserve? The only way that you can be saved from the wrath of God, the only way that the holy God will not be justly angry with you is if you have no sin at all. Zero. And you also must be perfectly righteous. Beloved, you cannot do that. You cannot do that. No one can do that. You cannot save yourself. And that should be the end. We all should be suffering God's just wrath right now forever in hell. That should be the end. But thanks be to God, it's not. God is merciful. He is kind to undeserving sinners. And so he sent Jesus, his holy and righteous son, to save us. Jesus is the only person who never sinned. He always glorified God as God. He always gave thanks to him. And he was able to do this. Why? Because he was himself God come in the flesh. So while every one of us exchanges the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, 
the truly immortal God of glory exchanged his glory for our sin. Jesus took on flesh of mortal man, the very image of God that we could see and touch and hear. Jesus came and he lived a life of perfect righteousness. He always did what pleased his father. He always loved God and loved others. And then he willingly laid down his life for those who had rejected him, for those who deserved God's wrath. He suffered God's punishment of wrath in our place. So when we get to Romans 5, we'll hear Paul say, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You read First uh, John and you'll hear John say that Jesus' death was the propitiation for our sins. That's a big word and it means this. Jesus was the sacrifice that turned aside God's wrath. In 2 Corinthians, you'll hear Paul write, for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Beloved, what does that mean? It means that even though Jesus had never sinned, Jesus had never sinned, he had no sin of his own, even though Jesus had never sinned, God treated him as if he had personally committed every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe and punished him for them all, though in reality he never committed a single one. And why did God do this? So that you, today could go from being his enemy to being his friend so that you could become the righteousness of God in him. This is the gospel, beloved, the grace of God, the substitution of Christ. Are you yourself righteous and holy? No. Are you perfectly sinless? No. Are you as righteous as Jesus Christ? Not even close. Are you as holy as God? No. Does God treat you as if you are? Yes. Hallelujah. God treats us as if we never did anything but the righteous deeds of Christ while at the same time treating Christ as if he committed our sins. (laughs) This is incredible good news. Such good news. This is why I say it's the best news the world has ever heard. And if you don't hear it like that, then either I haven't communicated it clearly or you're misunderstanding it. This is the best news the world has ever heard, so why refuse it? May God be pleased to enable us all today to humbly repent and receive God's gracious provision of salvation. And so, may we all, even if we've known the Lord for 30 years or more. May we all, as Paul describes God's people in another letter, turn from God to idols today to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.